All right, here we go. So let's jump in and talk about the fact that disciples love God, love people, and help others do the same. <clears throat> so this is our wrap-up session, and I want to try to give you some ways to think about things going forward. So let me first just address the fact that I need your help. So I've been strategic in choosing to teach this class. I have not been smart in choosing to teach this class. It has been a great... Um, amount of energy, time, and effort that I'm already finding in short supply with just this, the uh, adjustment to a new place. I'm still in my first year and it's very hard to make adjustments to being in a place like First Baptist during your first year. But I felt like it would be very strategic to offer this class at this point in time, even though I don't know that I had the time available to make this investment. I've never taught this material in this form. Many of those classes that you heard, I've never taught anywhere else. Um, and so this was a lot of work for me, but I felt like it was strategic in helping you know more about me and me casting clear vision about where we're headed. So I need your help. I've made a huge investment in terms of my energy and time in your lives. You have made a huge investment in terms of your time and energy in giving me an opportunity to teach you. And I need your help. And here is specifically what I'm asking for in terms of help. Number one, I've got four things I need you to do. Number one, I need you to influence others towards a disciple-making culture in our church. By being a first-generation disciple-maker here at First Baptist Church, Georgetown. Now, when I say first-generation disciple-maker, I am not implying there's never been a disciple-maker at First Baptist Church in the history. That's not what I'm implying. But I am asking the Lord for a movement a disciple-making movement here in this church that ripples out into our community and touches the world, all right? And I need a first generation of people say, I want to be a part of that kind of movement. And in order to do that, you need to say, I want to make a disciple in the next 12 months. I want to bring somebody else into my life and help them walk with Christ in a way that they will then go out and help somebody else walk with Christ. That's what I need. And the only way you can influence this body of believers to experience a disciple-making culture is if you make disciples. Is that clear? So I'm asking for that kind of commitment. On your your little handout that you can download. It's so short um, because we're not meeting again. There was only a limited amount of information that was needed on that. You can download it. I did not print off any extra. One of the things on there that you need to know if you're not going to download it is I've asked on that sheet that if you want to make the commitment to influencing the culture here by being a first-generation disciple-maker, I want to hear from you. I want you to email me at pastor at fbcgt.org and tell me that's what you are committing to do before the Lord. So pastor at fbcgt.org if you can email me and let me know I will make a commitment to pray for you to support you and to follow up with you. Okay? Number two, I need you to be a voice for trusting the Lord. If, if, if all of you in here say, I want to create a, a culture in this church of disciple-making, I am assuming, based on my limited knowledge, that that would feel different, that that would feel like change, that there'd be some level of change that happens in our church family if there is this surge 
of a disciple-making culture. How many people do you know that don't really like change? <laughs> so I need you to be a voice for trusting the Lord because when change happens and this focused vision and mission is creating change um, and, and will create more change, we need many voices encouraging others in the face of change to trust the Lord. Okay? Number three. In your life and your relationship in the church, your relationships in the church, so you all know a lot more people than I know. We just take collectively how many people we all know in this church. We know a lot of people. And so you all know a whole lot more people than I know. So I need you and your relationships with others in the church to lead the way in rejecting fear and embracing faith. A friend of mine reminded me recently, and it was so good to hear this, that we often fear what rarely becomes reality. And that means that what we fear should not be feared because fearing what never will be negatively affects what actually is. You follow that? And we should not let the fear of the unknown and the unrealized keep us from a better future by wrecking the present. So we need to embrace faith in Christ and help others to do the same because it's a lot better way. Are you hearing me? Any questions on that? Because that's, that's a big deal. Okay. Number four. Stay in grace. Don't leave the reality of grace. Don't forget that it was and is the grace of God that sustains, that enables, that equips that calls you forward. Don't move on from grace. Don't act like you don't need as much grace from the Lord as you've always needed. Don't ever think for one second that because you're not doing the sins you did five years ago, you are in less need of grace today than you were then. Always stay in grace. It's grace that moves us forward as disciple-makers. If you depart from grace, you will not make disciples. You will make Pharisees. Stay in grace. There's no better foundation and platform from which to obey the Lord than the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So those are the four things that I need your help on. And you spent... You spent hours with me hearing my heart and I'm trusting that because you've hung in here that you at some level resonate with my heart and that at a greater level we all agree upon what God has commissioned us to be and we've got to do this together. I, I need your help. All right, what I want to talk about um, in terms of thinking about how you go forward from all this information into the rest of your life, I want you to think about three relationships with me. Three the relationships that lead to four generations. All right, so relationship number one. is with the younger in the faith. This person may be older by age, younger in the faith. 
younger in age and younger in the faith. But the key criteria is someone younger in the faith. You need to have a relationship with someone younger in the faith. This is where discipleship happens. Okay, this is what we've been talking about, the whole idea of making disciples. Um, this, is, this is a learner, someone who's learning from you. This is someone you're discipling. This is your children. This is your grandchildren. This is younger people in the church. There's a whole lot of options for someone younger in the faith in your life in which you make an intentional investment. Okay, all the relationships... Um, we need to have, of all the relationships we need to have, this is the one that is the cl clear command of Scripture. I'm going to give you two more relationships that are necessary in your life for four generations to happen, but this is the one that is the clearest command in Scripture. You don't have this one, you're clearly disobeying God's Word. And I'm not talking about you know somebody younger in the faith. I'm talking about you have a relationship of intentional investment in someone younger in the faith, helping them become disciples who can make disciples. This is where the disciple making happens. All right? Um, let, me give you, let me give you three scripture references. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. We've, we've visited that one before in the class. 2 Timothy 2. Two, we've also talked about that one. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. And this, this is just Paul's explanation of what he's tried to do with everybody around him that's younger in the faith so that he might win any and all of them for the gospel and so that he lives his life for the display of the gospel so that people can be saved. So everybody around him, when he goes to new places, are younger in the faith because none of them are saved. And that he's doing everything he does in such a way that some people might come to Christ. And so that's, that's that encouragement right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. All right, the second relationship that you need to have is a peer relationship. This is where you have an experience of honesty and transparency. You need to be around people who are striving to live as you're striving to live. As a disciple maker, you need to surround yourself with a few people that you have a, a deepening relationship with who are wanting to be exactly what you're wanting to be. Like you've got to be in conversation with them. You've got to be in relationship with them. You've got to be honest and transparent about where you're at, and they need to return the favor to you. There needs to be this peer, eye-to-eye -eye relationship with somebody who says, my ambition is to make disciples. And you would say, that's my ambition. Now let's lock arms and let's go do it together. You need a peer that is on the same perspective and track as you are. All right, so that's the second relationship. All right, the third one is someone older in the faith. Again, it just might be that this person is younger in years, but older in the faith. It might be this person is older in years and older in the faith. But you need somebody in your life who is older in the faith. A relationship that's happening Someone older than So these are your teachers, your examples, your preachers, your leaders, your disciplers. Someone in your life that you can look up to. We all need people in our lives who have been doing what we are striving to do longer than we have been doing it. We need people who will provide wisdom and guidance for us as we seek to finish our course well. Okay? So this is the clear command. These are the icing on the cake. This is the cake. But it's really good when you can have all three. And you should strive to, as a disciple, to have these three relationships in your life because these three relationships are the best way to be a part of four generations of disciple-making. And four generations of disciple-making constitutes a disciple-making movement. And I'll show, you, I'll show you what I mean by that. Before I do that, let me give you a word about accountability. So, 
If I were to ask you which of these three relationships, in which of these three relationships would you experience accountability? I suspect that most of us would first say number two. What I would like you to consider is that all three of them provide accountability. And that a proper view of accountability is, um, lends itself to experiencing accountability best through these three relationships. And so let me give you a couple of words about accountability. Um, each of these relationships provide accountability. So I'm conveying and, and, and proposing that instead of having a, a set accountability group or a particular accountability partner in your life, that you would consider how being in these three relationships provide an avenue for authentic accountability. Okay, I did not just say don't have an accountability partner, don't be in an accountability group. That's not what I said. I want to say that these three relationships provide the avenue for authentic accountability. All right? So, the best accountability enforces the truth that we are ultimately accountable to God. A lot of accountability type relationships, let's go, go back to number two, will happen when me and another guy say we're accountable to each other. And that other guy asks me, have you been reading your Bible? And I say to him, yeah, I've been reading my Bible. And he says, fist bump, chest bump, way to go, high five, you're awesome, way to walk with the Lord. And all of a sudden, I've received praise from a man because of my testifying of my obedience. But that guy has no idea what's going on in my heart. Right? That doesn't mean I'm intentionally deceiving him. But it happens. What I have seen happen more often than not, that we begin to believe we're actually accountable to another person and we're answering the questions another person asks us the way that they've been asked so that we feel good that we gave great answers or we feel better because we are honest about our bad answers and we've really just experienced accountability to another human being and we've actually missed the fact that we're really accountable ultimately to God. So, again, I'm not saying accountability relationships are bad. I'm not saying accountability partners are the wrong way to go. I'm saying that in all three of these relationships, you can experience some authentic accountability, and I want to kind of point you in that direction. Everybody with me? So here we go. All right. What do I mean by accountability? Here's what I mean. I do not mean meeting an arbitrary checklist of spiritual activity in the sight of men. That's not what I mean when I say accountability. Did you pray this week? Did you read your Bible this week? Did you share your faith this week? Did you memorize scripture this week? I'm not saying that those questions are bad or answering those questions are bad. I'm not saying that at all. But accountability is not simply answering an arbitrary list of spiritual activities to another person alone. So hang in there. Okay, here's what I do mean by accountability. I mean that having our hearts regularly examined by God so that before a holy God, as I see His holy character, I am left humbled and grateful that I was able even to pick up my Bible and read it instead of being destroyed by His holiness in my sin. So that now I am in awe that His grace not only allowed me to pursue Him, but actually to find Him and know Him. What I mean by accountability is that I'm experiencing the examination of God so that it leaves me with a passion to seek and obey the one who forgave me of my sin. So, should another guy ask me whether or not I've read my Bible? Well, certainly. But no matter what my response is to that human being, that man should say to me, have you encountered the presence of God? Because only God knows whether or not your answer to me is what he wants from you. And what you and I need to do is get on our knees before God and make sure that we frequented His presence. Because it's the presence of God 
where we find accountability for our wayward hearts, not in the accolades or the approval of man. Are you following me? So the goal of accountability is for all of our relationships in the body of Christ to drive us and propel us into the presence of the Lord so that we walk by faith, so that the Spirit of God is regularly examining our hearts and leading us forward in sanctification. So that's, here's what that looks like in these relationships. So a relationship with someone younger in the faith, how does that bring accountability? When I meet with somebody younger in the faith, do you know that it is very difficult to practice being um, fake? See, see, if I am investing in someone younger in the faith, and I am teaching them how to hear the voice of God through the reading of the scriptures. It is very difficult to pretend that I'm hearing the voice of God in the reading of the scriptures for a very long time and do this. So you know what I have to do before I meet with somebody younger in the faith to tell them about how to pray? I better pray. I've got to go before the Lord and say, God, I'm fixing to teach a younger in the faith how to pray. And Lord, you know I don't pray like you want me to pray. And I need you to help me teach them because if I teach them to follow me, they're going to be lousy prayers. But I want, them to I want to teach them what I know about you when I come to you in prayer. And all of a sudden, you've been held accountable by the presence of God because you are entering this relationship to help a younger in the faith find God. Right? Are you hearing me? Okay, so this relationship demands authenticity in your own walk with the Lord. All right, the peer relationship. This relationship is where your passion for the Lord can be stirred because you're walking together with someone who's like you, in great need of grace, in a similar stage of faith. One of the peer relationships that God's blessed me with since I've been here, and I'm so grateful for it, has consistently stirred my heart for the Lord. Because I hear this man talking about his deficiencies. Because God has unveiled the brokenness of his life. And he's telling me what God has shown him. I'm like, God, I want you to unveil the brokenness of my life in a new way because I want to grow. And I tell that to him and he hears that. And next thing you know, we're stirring each other into the presence of God. And we're not worrying about an arbitrary checklist that simply is not applicable at all times in all seasons. We're walking together in the Spirit of Christ. You see that? It's amazing. Then this relationship, the older in the faith, this is, this is the relationship that brings so much humility and provokes amazing Desire. What I've found in the older in the faith relationships is you can't play games. Because the older in the faith is wiser and can see right through your game playing. In such a way that oftentimes peers and younger in the faith cannot see. I would meet with a, a man older in the faith um, through the last decade of my life. And every time I would meet with him, I would leave with this holy ambition that God would bring forth out of my heart to finish well. Because he was passionate for Christ and he was 87 years old. He shared his faith. He made disciples. He took younger along with him. He poured out his life for the sake of Christ. And the more I learned about him, and the, his relationship with the Lord, the more I wanted to know Christ. And I could simply not play games with him. He would ask me, how are you doing in your relationship with Lindley? I could not say to him, we're doing fine. He'd been married longer than I'd been alive. He knows that's not an honest answer. 
He wanted more, and I couldn't get away with less. See? And by having to tell him what's really going on in the areas of my life, it propelled me to need the Lord. Because I saw in him a man who had found the sweet savor of Christ to be more than sufficient for twice my lifetime. That changes your life. You get a picture of accountability like I'm describing it. That's beautiful. Okay? So, let's, let's, let's go back into this idea of three relationships for four generations. Okay, so... Here you are, and you want to be in a relationship with someone older in the faith, like a Paul, okay? This would make you Timothy in this biblical concept. And then this would be faithful people, people who have come to Christ that then you are able to have a relationship. This is younger in the faith. This is 2 Timothy 2.2. We did this, okay? It's been a long time since we did it. And then the scripture says that these will pour out to others. So you have somebody that's older in the faith is affecting you, you are affecting someone younger in the faith, and then they will be touching someone else in the faith. These three relationships are how we get to a fourth generation. Some of you will be this for Timothy. And it will take you a while to have someone older in the faith. Some of you may be so old in the faith, it's going to be hard for you to find somebody older than the faith. You know what that means? You know, you know the good news about that is that, that that wasn't your command. This was not your command. This is. The younger in the faith is your command. If you don't have somebody older in the faith, you're not deficient. You're just having one piece out and you're investing in another so that there'll be a third and then a fourth. All right? Don't get hung up over that. This is the command, the younger. But the fastest and best way to a fourth generation movement of disciple making is to have these three relationships happening in your life. Make sense? All right. This is where we need to be right here, all of us. We need to work on spending our life right there in between somebody older and somebody younger so that others hear Christ. This is the way you live your life to engage people with the gospel. And I want to give you a way to think about that engagement through something called the four fields. So the four fields is a training that has been developed by Nathan Shank. And it is used primarily um, on the mission field. And I have, because of my interaction with individuals on the field, been introduced to this way of thinking, and I like it, and I think it's helpful. And I want to give you the, way, the grid to think this way in terms of how you spend your time in your life. So there are four fields. Did anybody go to this session with a couple from Russia? Okay, good. Nathan, you want to come up here and help me do this? <laughs> Good, so there's four fields, and field, field one is, is the empty field. All right, and field two is the seed field. This we're going to throw seeds in the field. Seal, uh, field three is the life field. This is where we see plants starting to come up. And then field four is the harvest. 
So these are basic labels of the four fields. Now, field one, the empty field, is the entry. The entry field. Okay? So this is the field. Luke 19 is a great story about um, Zacchaeus. And Luke 19.10 talks about the fact Jesus was out to seek and to save the lost. So this is, this is our experience in the field of this world where there are no seeds planted, thrown into people's lives. And we are living in this world to cast seeds of truth into empty fields, empty hearts. Hearts that have not experienced the truth. That's why we live where we live, when we live. That's why you work where you work. That's why you live in the neighborhood you're in. That's why you're in Georgetown, Texas, because there are empty fields right here all around us, and they will remain empty if Christ's seed throwers do not enter the empty fields. Right? So this is where you are looking every single day in the patterns of your life for entry into a new field, a new heart, an empty field with the seeds of truth, the gospel, living as a disciple maker in all you do, home, work, and play. You're casting seeds of truth through how you live, how you love, how you act into fields of any and every heart who comes into your path so that you create opportunities for casting seeds of the gospel. You're constantly looking for fields that are ready to hear the gospel by engaging people with truth in all you do, all you say. This field is where you're looking for an open field for casting the seed of the gospel. So field number two is, you could label it as gospel. This is entry. You're looking for a heart that is saying, I am soil ready for the gospel. I'm living my life casting seeds of the truth everywhere I go, not assuming that anyone is not a field whose heart has been prepared by God for the truth. I'm not walking up to the guy that looks totally different than me, that has 180 degree, different lifestyle of me, and thinking he is not ready for the gospel. I'm not doing that. I'm approaching everybody as an entry, an empty field. I'm casting seeds of truth to see if they might say, I want to hear more, or I'm willing to listen, or yes, you can tell me the gospel. Boom, we just went to the next field, a heart that is ready to hear the gospel. Are you with me? So, this second field is where this, this is the opportunity of actually sharing the gospel with someone who wants to hear the message, ready to respond. This is planting the gospel into the heart of an individual. Now, you need to remember it often takes multiple sowers of seeds to see harvests come about. So when somebody says, I want to hear, I'm willing to hear, and then after hearing they say, I'm not sure. Don't, at that point, they're no longer that field. No, <laughs> just remember that sometimes it takes time. And if they're still willing to hear, or maybe you don't have another chance to tell them, but they were willing to listen, pray for them. God, bring other people to speak the truth to them. Help them hear and remember the gospel. Or keep sending people so they could hear enough and respond because they're obviously listening. They're, they're wanting to hear. They're a field that's ready for the gospel. Send laborers for the harvest, Lord. See? So you got to come up with that perspective. And then be, be conscious of the fact that it's God who saves. So, so you have something that's open to the gospel. If they begin to be less open than you thought they would, don't assume that God's not working and try to take over for Him. Okay? Just let God work. He's the one who saves. You keep presenting the message. You keep loving them with the message. You keep being that person that is a tangible expression of the message. 
And you let God save them, but you keep communicating the message. But trust that the Lord is the one who will save. As people respond to the seeds of truth scattered in their lives, you're going to see how God is working and then the role that you need to take in their life as you partner with the Holy Spirit. You're partnering with the Holy Spirit in this. Okay, then field three where new life happens. This is, this is what we would call the, the discipleship field. Discipleship field is where life just flourishes and takes bloom. This is, this is that, uh, oh, by the way, let, let me do this. This is John. Um, 442 right here. This is where the woman at the well goes back and tells her hometown what's happened and they say, we've heard you tell us about him, but we want to go meet him ourselves. And they go and meet Jesus and it changes everything. This is that person says, I've heard what you're telling me about Jesus. I want to meet him. I want to meet him. Okay. Then the discipleship one is Matthew 28, 19 through 20 that we've already made note of. Now, this is the opportunity to take a newer young believer and help them grow as a follow of Christ. This is the making of a disciple. This is training and helping this person to know how to engage in the four fields. So you're teaching this person, how do you go into the empty field? How do you go into the gospel field? How do you go into the discipleship field? And then how do you go into the harvest field? So you're teaching them these four fields right here in this segment. So they, they then can be looking at their life as, as a four-field life. All right? Okay, then field number four, we'll call the, the uh, the church, the church field. Um, what they'll call it a lot of times on, on the, on the uh, mission field is the church planting field. This is where churches actually happen. When you get people who have heard the gospel, embraced the gospel, been discipled on the gospel, they become a part of a church, a gathering of believers. And that's where the church then begins. And then the church goes into the empty field, into the seed field, into the life field. And then you have a new church that's born. And this begins to happen and churches are planted and spread into places. So when you think about it in your context, we certainly want to keep the idea of helping other churches flourish by discipling people who may or may not be forever in our church, right? It'd be really good if God would cause all of us to disciple somebody and uh, a good majority of those somebodies we disciple, He calls to other places of the world where they don't make disciples. Wouldn't that be cool? And then next thing you know, we're touching the ends of the earth and maybe we haven't grown by one single person in this building but we will have grown by thousands in the kingdom of God. That's what it's about, right? So what you do in field four is this is, this is when the disciple becomes a disciple maker, a person who's able to engage and is seeking to engage in all four fields. So this person is now moved here to the harvest section where they're saying, I have been fully harvested. I am now a disciple maker. I've come to the point of bearing fruit and I'm going to enter into the empty field and the gospel field and the life field and I'm going to help people know Christ as someone has helped me. This is when the disciple becomes a part of building the church for the return of Christ. This is where you teach the disciple what it means to be a part of the church and why that's so important. And I'm here to tell you that, that there is a very unbiblical view of the church among God's people because there has been a failure among God's people to teach believers, for, of believers teaching believers what it really means to be in the body of Christ in a local church. People today actually believe, by way of their actions, that the local church is more like a club than the body of Christ. I can come when I want. I can pay what I want. I can enjoy the services as I want. And I'm really thankful that it's there when I want it and when I don't want it. And as soon as I don't like it, I'll go find a new one. 
Well, none of that is biblical. And yet that is a lot of the attitude that is pervasive in our culture right now. Right? And, and how we change that is not because I preach louder and stronger. It's not because I yell and offend more people. Now, I'm going to teach the truth. But I cannot train people like you can train people when you meet with them here to teach them about the church. You know how, much, how long it will take me to teach First Baptist Church about the church in a way that it becomes the identity of the church? It'll take a decade of preaching God's Word. You know how long it'll take for the church, First Baptist Church, to understand the identity of the church, the value of the church, the place of the church, if we have a disciple-making movement? Four generations. That's it. I'll prove it to you later, but that's true. All right? So we got to do that. All right, let me give you some key components of the church. Another little aside here about the church. This uh, is also in the Four Fields Training Manual. So I'm just pulling it from that, and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, Key components of the church, there are five of them. Number one, there is one head of the church. That truth right there was the most freeing truth in my leaving Southside Baptist Church. The most. The leadership of the church stood up and said, when Kevin leaves, we will still have the same leader of our church here because he ain't going with him and leaving us with nobody. He's staying here and he'll be there, and his name is Jesus. He is the head of our church. And the people just like, yeah, what do we need Kevin for? We have Jesus. <laughs> you know? And uh, it's just a wonderful reality that the church has one head, and his name is Jesus. It's not your pastor. Praise God, it's not me. We'd be in a world of hurt. So one head. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 22 and 23. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. The church has two authorities. I want to be cautious. I am, I am giving honor to the material that I'm conveying to you by telling you what it says. Now I'm going to tell you what it means. All right, two authorities. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now here's why I'm being cautious with that. Because if you separate word and spirit as if they're two different authorities, you misunderstand word and spirit. They are one in the same authority. Are you with me? The word of God never does anything contrary to the spirit of God. The spirit of God never does anything contrary to the word of God. It's one authority expressed two ways. The Word of God, the Spirit of God. Very important. You understand that. All right? Number three, three servants. I'm going to modify this one as well just a little bit. Three servants. The first servant is the pastor or elder. I am not foolish enough to, or naive enough to, to um, have missed the fact that the word elder has created some previous turmoil in our church family. But I want you to rest easy when I say the word elder because I'm simply using a word in the Bible that describes one office, office of pastor or elder or overseer or bishop. These are English words used to describe the original language words that describe one office. We call that office in this church pastor, and that's a great term. It conveys shepherd. It conveys authority. It conveys leadership. That's good, because all of those terms in Scripture convey those things. So that's servant number one, the servant of pastor. Servant number two is the deacons, the deacons. Now, deacons and pastors are intended to work complementary with each other, not against each other. They're not designed to fight over territory or power. 
They're intended to work together so that they both flourish in the serving of God's people, so that the people of God flourish, so that the gospel of God goes out from a healthy body of believers, so that the church looks at the, tr the world looks at the church and says, I prefer that reality over the reality I'm living in in the world. Does that make sense? So you get those two servants. Now the third servant that the four field material uh, indicates is, this, is the servant of the treasurer. This comes from Jesus, while he was doing his ministry, he appointed a treasurer to keep the money. Now, there is reason to believe that the deacons can assist in that role at some level, but certainly there is wisdom in having another group of people in the church that handle money so that others in authority are not in a position of being accused and having no defense. This is wise, all right? But I will not tell you that the Bible paints a clear picture of an official role of treasurer. Do you know who Jesus' treasurer was? Okay, there, enough said. <laughs> but there is wisdom for having appropriate checks and balances in areas where you should avoid any hint of evil. And money is the easiest place for the church to avoid evil. Okay, so the, and there's a way to do that. And I think First Baptist Church has done a great job in moving in that direction. You know, this church has an audit um, every year. That's, that's pretty amazing. Among other things in place to create checks and balances. So it's a good, good situation. All right? And, uh, okay, then number four, four marks of maturity in the church. Four marks of maturity. Number one is self-governing, able to make decisions. Number two is self-supporting. They're able to take care of themselves financially. This is the mark of you know, a mature church. And then um, self-reproducing. They're actually reaching out on their own, beyond their um, community, beyond, beyond their church community. Okay? And then uh, self-correcting. They are actually visibly, tangibly maturing. Change is happening in the church, and the church embraces the difficulty of the change and calls it good. Maturing. Okay? How many churches have you heard about in the past that encountered some level of change and they just fell apart? Anybody know of a church like that? Immature. That's not what the church is meant to do. The church is meant to encounter the changes God brings and flourish because of those changes. You all know what happens to the church that never changes, right? Tell me. It dies. We all know that, right? Does anybody here want First Baptist Church to die? Well, you just said you want it to change. Isn't that right? Now, that does not mean change for change's sake, right? We're not just going to change because change is the way to life. No, I'm not saying change is the way to live. I'm saying following Christ is the way to live, and following Christ means we change. Who in here believes that by following Christ, you will not change another bit in your personal life the rest of your life? Does anybody here believe that? Or does everybody understand and embrace the fact that knowing Christ means that every single day there's reason to change for the rest of our lives? Well, if that's the case for us individually, how is it any different for the church body as a whole? Can anybody tell me? You see what I'm getting at? We call change a bad word in this place. You know what I'm telling you? Change is a blessing and it's the way of God and we better embrace it or we will be judged. Does that sound like good news or bad news? That's good news, isn't it? I'm not, I, that's not doom and gloom. That's good news. God wants us to be different. And that's better for us. 
Doesn't mean it doesn't make me nervous, make you nervous, but we've got to push away fear and embrace faith. All right? Okay, five functions. This is the fifth one, fifth component of the healthy church. Five functions. Worship. This is the love God component. Fellowship. This is love the church component. Ministry. This is where we're a blessing to all people. So worship, love God. Fellowship, love the church. Ministry, blessing to all people. Mission. This is where we're going to the lost. And discipleship. This is where we're making disciples. Let me go through those one more time. Worship, love God. Fellowship, love the church. Ministry, blessing to all people. Mission, going to the lost. Discipleship, making disciples. All right. All right, let's... Let's say that that's Paul, and that's Timothy, and Timothy poured out to some other people, right? Who then poured out to some other people. Timothy wasn't the only person that Paul poured out to. Poured out to Priscilla and Aquila, right? And then they poured out to people, poured out to people. He also poured into Titus, poured out to people, right? And then Silas, and who knows who else? But you see what Paul created was this, this disciple-making tree. And from that comes many people who make disciples, right? So, when I think about my life and what it looks like right now down here, I am completely staggered that God called us to this honor. And I'm praying it would floor you. It would astound you. It would amaze you that God called you and me to this honor. And we would find our Timothy. We would find our Priscilla. And we would pour out into their lives so that they would find faithful men and women who were able to teach other men and women. And we created a disciple-making tree in the kingdom of God. These are the oaks that will not be moved by the storms of this world. You know how long it takes to make an oak tree? A disciple-making tree is a slow process. But it is a process that changes the world. And you've been called to this honor. If God grants you one more year to live your life, or 25, or 50, I urge you to make the most of every year by making disciples. Strive for making disciples at least one per year. Just, just say, God, I want to make a disciple, a, a person who follows you, that can help someone follow you, one per year for the rest of my life, if you would be so gracious to me. And maybe there'll be one year that you have two people that you help to become disciples. Maybe one year you, you, it takes 18 months instead of 12 for somebody to get to the place where they make a disciple who makes disciples. You see... Just ask the Lord, could, could you not use me to bring one person to the place where they're able to help someone know Christ and they go and they do it for the rest of my life? Could you not use me in this way, God? Because this kind of life will change the world. You, you remember the power of multiplication? Listen to this. If you follow this pattern, 
discipling one person per year who will then be a disciple maker, then after six years, how many people will you have discipled? Six people, right? You all with me? I know, I know this is challenging. Changing gears, going to math. Six. Yeah, no trick here. So, so then those six people along those six years after year one um, have been making disciples. So after year six, you will have 64 disciples. Because year one, I'm discipling one. Year two, the both of us are discipling someone. So that's four people. Year four, I mean year three, four people are making disciples. So that's eight. So year four, eight people are making disciples. You see what I'm saying? So we have 64 disciples after six years. Over those six years, if all 64, let's just do it this way. If only those who are disciple makers, okay, so year one, how many disciple makers are there? One, year one. Year two, there are two disciple makers. Year three, there are four disciple makers. You get the idea? So in every year, the number of disciple makers, let's say that each one of those individuals says, during this year of disciple making, I'm gonna share the gospel with one person per week, per week. Now that's ambitious, right? But just think about this. If that happens, if, if that happens, there'll be thousands of people hear the gospel from 64 people. Let me, let me just expand it to 10 years. Just go four more years, make four more disciples, so now there's 10 people you've discipled, and, and the total number of disciples has jumped from 64 to 1,024 in just four more years. You people who know money, you know exactly what I'm doing. Power of multiplication, right? Yeah, it's amazing. This is compounding interest for the kingdom of God. It's awesome. So the potential number of people who could have heard the gospel each week because those people shared would be over 50,000 people hearing the gospel in 10 years. Think you can change the world? This is, that's just by you making a disciple once a year for 10 years. Okay, now let's, let's you say, well, that's unrealistic. Well, let's be a little bit more realistic even if every disciple were to share someone with the gospel once per month, just share the gospel. And that's just the ones who are disciples. Once per 12,000 people hear the gospel. If you and the person you're discipling share the gospel with two people each per year, I don't think that's really that ambitious, do you? Say, I'm going to share the gospel with one person over the next six months and then do it again the next six months. And the person that I'm discipling, I'm going to help them do the same thing in six months and the same thing in the next six months. If you do that after 10 years, over 4,000 people would have heard the gospel just by you investing your life in one person a year and sharing the gospel two times a year. 4,000 people hear the gospel. And no telling how many become disciples. See, what I'm getting at is that every single one of us, every single one of us can leave a legacy for the glory of Jesus Christ in the church. There's nothing more significant, there's nothing more eternal that you can do with your life than making disciples. That is obedience. That's God's will for your life. You're sitting there asking the Lord, what is your will for my life? What am I supposed to do? What is your will for my life? I'll tell you, there's nothing more significant for your life in God's will for your life than you making disciples right where you are. There's nothing more significant in terms of your purpose, then that right there, this is your life pursuit. And it's the life pursuit in which you will find God's divine intervention, His divine enabling, His sovereign action, bending heaven and earth for this very purpose. You want to see God move in ways you simply cannot explain, then do His will of making disciples.
it, it will blow you away. That's why you're on this earth, to bring glory to Christ by making disciples. Everything else is secondary and simply a vehicle for this one great honor. Now, I want to tell you that we, as your leaders, your pastors, are here to help you. If you want to be a disciple maker, but some perceived deficiency, notice I use those words carefully, chose those words carefully, De perceived deficiency. You are not deficient, but if you can't get past something for any reason, that's why we're here, to help you. We want to help you. Nothing needs to keep you from obedience. Nothing can keep you from obedience if you properly understand what God's will for your life really means. If God's will for your life is for you to be a disciple maker and you pursue God's will for your life, you will experience God's will for your life. I mean, it's God's will that we're talking about. Can anything stand against the will of God? Well, then join Him. Join Him and we'll help you. Make the most of the time that God has given you. He's given you 168 hours in every week. And it's perfect, perfect for you to be a disciple maker. There is none of you whose job is so demanding, life so crazy, family so chaotic that you don't have time to make disciples. The one who fashioned and created time itself has fashioned every moment of your day to do his will. And his will is within your 168 hours every week to make disciples. Right in the middle of the life you live right in the middle of the work that demands your time, right in the middle of the family that needs your loyalty. He has called you to make disciples. So believe it. God's will for your life is to make disciples.